This is episode four of the Mulligan Brothers podcast, the most inspiring podcast in the world. I am your host, Jordan Mulligan, and today's podcast is with ex-Special Forces soldier, Ollie Ollerton, all-round, absolutely great guy who has authored some really, truly inspiring books as well and puts out some of the best motivational content, in my opinion, online. So... Before doing this interview with Ollie, I read his book and I cannot recommend the book enough. For me, the stories of his childhood were so interesting. The stories of how he ended up getting into the military and the special forces were really, really interesting. But his stories of war are so mesmerizing, scary, and also inspiring that this makes for one of my favorite episodes of the podcast that we have done so far. One of the things that I found over the last three or four years of interviewing people, whenever it is a military guy, and, you know, the channel has interviewed quite a lot, and the reason for that is because their stories are so inspiring. The What they go through is a job, is scary enough, is inspiring enough, is motivational enough, the causes that they are fighting for is inspiring enough. But the thing that I have found, especially with the Special Forces guys, it takes a certain type of person. And that certain type of person leads a life that I think is valuable and rich in lessons, knowledge, wisdom, and inspiration that we can all take and apply into our day-to-day lives. Something that I have done with all the interviews uh, with the military guys, I mean, all the interviews I do in general, but the military guys especially, these lessons are interweaved into my life everywhere. And I really want you to, throughout this interview, hear the stories, as entertaining as they are, hear them all. But remember what the moral of the story is. Find the message in the story. Sometimes it's not as obvious as it seems. And Ollie's such a good storyteller that you can you can pick up on them. But yeah, Ollie, thank you so much for your time on this podcast episode. Today's video was sponsored by MulliganBrothers.com. It made this possible. Uh, you can buy the Inspire Change t-shirt to support the Inspire Change movement at MulliganBrothers.com. You can also support us by heading over to Instagram at Jordan Mulligan Brother, giving me a follow, give Mulligan Brothers a follow at Instagram as well, just to see what we're up to. And head over to YouTube and consider becoming a member over at YouTube so you can see our mini documentaries and so much more. Uh, All the content is free on there and it is always inspirational. Today's episode is with Ollie Ollerton. Let's jump into it. So uh, the, f- the first thing we'll start is start early, early days, but just to start off with, for people who don't know, just introduce yourself and what you do. My name's Ollie Ollerton. I'm better known for the DS on SAS, who does wins on Channel 4. I'm a former UK Special Forces soldier. Okay, so early days, um, you grew up local to here, actually. Yeah. Um, what was that childhood like, the early days? You know what, I can't, I can't, because of a traumatic experience I had at 10 years old, I can't remember much at all pre 10 year, 10 years old. Um, but for me, I was just like any average kid. You know, we went to quite, quite a posh school um, up until the age of about seven or eight. 
Um, but then I had um, a crazy experience um, in Burton-on-Trent, so not too far from here. And um, it was a boiling hot day. And um, we had a knock on the door. And it was my brother's best mate, James. And he wanted to know if we wanted to go swimming. And it was a beautiful day, so my mum was pleased to get us out of the house. And off we went. And we were just crossing the River Trent across the bridge and we saw the big top setting up in, in Burn-on-Trent. So we were so excited. Our, our, our walk turned into a run. And before we knew it, we were at the, at the circus at the big top where we saw this first guy and we're like, hey, mate, can we have a look around? And he was like, yeah, sure. It was 1980. There was no health and safety. And we walked into the big tent and I seemed to get separated from my brother and James. And there was a few animals around, an elephant, a small little monkey. And um, I was drawn to this area of the other side of the tent where I could see some light sort of partially coming through the door. And I walked over to it. And as soon as I opened the door, the sunlight hit me in the face, blurred my vision. And then all of a sudden when my vision cleared, I saw something that was amazing. Something that just had me in a semi-state of shock. And that was a baby chimp it was sat on the floor, probably about 10, 15 meters in front of me. Now for me, I was brought up on Tarzan, you know, and that was Cheetah. Not only was it Cheetah, that was to me like a little piece of Hollywood. I was brought up with cats and dogs, but this was like a chimp, a baby chimp in Burton-on-Trent in Staffordshire. So uh, I moved my way, moved over to it cautiously, looked down at this beautiful little chimp and it stared at me with these big brown eyes and it was, it was a weird moment. It was like, it was surreal. You know, we connected. You're probably thinking, yeah, you did with the big ears. But anyway, so we connected and uh, it, was, it was an amazing moment. You know, it's so peaceful. The, the sky was just perfect. It was beautiful. Nothing else mattered apart from that moment. And it seemed like it was going on forever, but it only lasted a few seconds. And all of a sudden, that serenity, the serenity of that moment was broken like a fighter jet cutting through the sky when I heard the roar of something. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that roar. I can still hear that roar to this day. And as I looked into the background, there were some shadows. There was some like a, a trailer part there, but it was all enclosed. The whole area was enclosed and something was moving. And it roared again. And all of a sudden, that, those shadows turned into what was a very big chimp, especially compared to the baby chimp, especially compared to the size of me as a 10-year-old boy. And it was making its way towards me at Mach 10, doing the whole sideways chimp thing. And it was roaring, you know, it was absolutely ferocious. It wanted to do one thing, and that was to kill me and protect its baby. And at that point, I was like a deer in the headlights, but I thought, shit, I've got to move. And as I thought that, this chimp pounced straight through the air. It must have been about 20 foot, straight over the baby chimp. And all of a sudden, the blue sky turned to black, and this thing landed on top of me, pinned me to the floor, and started going about me, trying to kill, just basically trying to kill me. And it was like a drummer in a rock band. It was smashing down on its fists onto my chest. The first one winded me, knocked everything out of me, and then it started trying to kill me. And um, at one point I looked up and I, I knew that if I didn't do something, I was going to die. 
And then I saw blood, there was blood flying around. It wasn't the chimp's blood, it was mine. And it was in that moment, it wasn't something I thought about, but I reacted, fight or flight, and I reacted. And I managed to dislodge the chimp from my chest. It gave me probably about a couple of inches just to pull my knee up to my chest, smashed it in the chimp's chest with my foot full force, and it knocked it a couple of feet away. That gave me just enough space just to scurry away, and then this chimp got up and it came on its final attack to kill me. And uh, just as it got to me, the chain caught its neck. And if it wasn't for that chain, I wouldn't be here today. And there I'm stood there, again, like I say, 10-year-old, very young, and I'm dripping with blood, marks all over me where it, you know, chewed me. And then the whole place erupted. This woman came over and she said, look, we're going to have to get you looked at. And um, at that point, she put a hand around my wrist and, as she, and then she turned it over and she was in a state of shock as she turned it over. As you can see, that's a large part missing, but half my arm was just hanging out. You know, that was the worst damage and there was blood everywhere and she, she pretty much fainted. Um, ambulance came, went to the hospital. That's, that's quite a long story. It went on and on from there and uh, caught gangrene in my arm, nearly lost my arm. Some, uh, a couple of weeks after that but yeah that was that was a shocking experience for me but for me that was my first break point and that typifies the meaning behind break point it was that moment where I had to step into the short-term discomfort for any long-term gain the long-term gain was living that day the short-term discomfort was taking the fight to the chimp and that for me Although that was my first break point, that's how people live their lives. They're not prepared to step into that discomfort, knowing that on the other side of that is the long-term gain. The way we're wired, and this is the way people operate basically, is everyone's taking short-term comfort, whether that's drugs, drink, relationships, job choices, all the choices they make, they make knowing that there's a level of comfort there. And if you want to achieve anything in life, if you want to achieve success at work, success in any aspect of your life, you need to take short-term discomfort for long-term gain. And that really, like I say, was, the, was my first breakpoint. And the reason why my book is called Breakpoint, the reason why my company is called Breakpoint. So I owe a great deal of thanks to the chimp. Um, looking at, like, I know you relate this to day-to-day -day life, and I think that's fantastic, but for you, it was life or death situation. How does somebody, so you've learned early on that you can, you can make this decision for long-term gain, for short-term discomfort. How can somebody who's not facing such a situation make that decision in, in the same sort of way you did? Well, the last thing I want people doing is finding the local circus and looking for a chimp. <laughs> it doesn't need to be about the big stuff. You know, it doesn't need to be about these life-threatening situations. We're faced with this day in, day out. You know, everything we do in life is about taking the short-term discomfort. You know, and that whether that's sending an extra email, staying a bit longer at work, whatever it is, it's like also let's relate it to physical exercise or something. If you want to achieve a goal, let's say you want to run the London Marathon every uh, next year, you know that every week you're going to have to do some training to achieve that. And that is about, yeah, you're not going to want to. By the time it comes to putting your trainers on going out the door, your mind is going to tell you, 
and enforce every reason why you shouldn't do it. And it's devious. It'll tell you to go and check your computer, do this, do that. And that's when we have to switch this off. You have to switch the mind off and follow the process. And that's something that I learned from an early age, but something that was further enforced in the military. You have to follow process, follow your heart, switch off this, which is the program. And, that, and through that, you will achieve your aim. So really, it's, if you can take care of the small stuff, you know, about doing everything, whether that's washing the dishes before you go to bed at night so you don't come down to a whole mess in the kitchen, whatever it is, making your bed in the morning, simple things. If you can do the simple things, the big stuff takes care of itself. Um, we talk, when, you, when you said early days, you said that you went to a, a poshish school, um, but it wasn't smooth sailing. So what, what's that, those, those early days when you're going into school and stuff like that? What, what were those days, if you could explain to the viewers? After the chimp, the chimp changed my life. It changed the, you know, that was a pivotal um, turning point of my life. It came from a very good family. My brother and sister were, um, were extremely different. And I, I, owe, I, I say I owe, I owe it because I have no regrets about it, but it's because of the chimp experience, because of that experience changed me. Childhood trauma is one of the worst kind of traumas that you can get because it sinks. It, it's absorbed so much easier than later trauma. And, and obviously affects your life. But from that point, from that moment on, my life went haywire. You know, I was chasing danger everywhere I could. I had no, I was void of consequence, void of emotion. And I just wanted to be on the edge of death. I know that sounds extreme, but that was really the making for me, wanting to join the military and being the best of the best. But really for me, you know, I, I was at school, I was... I lost interest in school. I didn't see the point of it. And to this day, I don't really see the point of it. I've not changed my mind on that one. There's a lot of stuff I learned at school that just is irrelevant. Um, but for me, I lost interest at school. And then I wanted to, you know, it just wasn't high enough adrenaline for me. You know, I was good at my sports and stuff like that. But then I started, you know, pushing the boundaries a bit too far. And that's probably one thing I do regret because it caused, caused my family a lot, of, um, a lot of pain and discomfort with that. Um, but yeah, we were, I was doing stupid stuff like stealing stuff from shot and all that kind of stuff. But just not because I needed it, just because it, it made me feel alive, you know. Um, in, so you decided quite early on that you wanted to go, go down the military route. Yeah. Um, I know that you said in your book that you was kind of ridiculed for it. Like a lot of people said, you're not going to do it, waste of time, you'll never do it. Uh, how did you deal with that doubt and what was that like? Yeah, for me, I mean, I made that decision really early and, you know, I've, I've got a 19-year-old boy who still doesn't know what he wants to do and at 14, I didn't see it at the time, but, you know, it, it, was, it was quite profound to be um, making a decision about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and that was to join the Royal Marines. But for me, you know, people can take doubt one or two ways. You know, some people get delivered doubt from someone else and that absolutely makes them crumble, cripples them, stops them. It, 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 they stop chasing their dreams. They start believing the doubt expressed from someone else. For me, it works differently. And as soon as I hear that, it gives me more energy to prove them wrong. And I've always been like that. You know, even to this day, I actually, when I'm thinking about doing a project, business project or whatever, I actually do want someone to say to me, you can't do that because it's like a red flag to a bull. But it's just how you frame it. It's the same with so many things. You know, some people, if you allow that self-doubt to, to, to ruin your dreams, you're never going to get anywhere in life. But the thing is, as long as you're passionate enough 
as long as you're coming from the heart and not from the head and your motivation is pure passion for what you believe in no one can stop you what was it about marines marines were the best of the best you know i wanted to be in the hardest fighting unit you know i didn't want to learn a trade i wanted to be at war every day you know and that's not that's something i've changed my view on massively just recently or not recently but you know but at that time as a boy i didn't want to i wanted to learn to be a soldier i wanted to learn how to shoot weapons i wanted to learn how to shoot the enemy i wanted to be in conflict every day and for me the marines were the people that were going to get me there you know i saw um you know i was around about the falklands wartime 1982 that's when i was sort of growing up and that was a big influence on my life you know i did see if you remember 1980 as well there was the um embassy where the sas went into the embassy in london and it was phenomenal but the thing is although i knew the special forces were there i just thought special forces they're like they're carved in marble on a different planet and bought you know they're not they're cut from a different cloth I just thought I could never achieve that. But what I thought I could, although I doubted myself, I could achieve the Royal Marines, but I knew it was the toughest. And that's what I wanted. I heard, for me, it was about the training. I, I went, I looked at the training and whose training was the longest and it was the Royal Marines. So that's, in my head, I thought, well, they must be the best. Um, first day you go down to Marines, or I don't know if it was the first day, but you go down to Marines and there was a woman who said something to you. I think she sort of says, what do you think you're going to, could you go through that for us? Yeah, no, that was interesting because after that, you know, one thing I'll say about my mum, I mean, I put her through hell and it was all, you know, I, getting into trouble at school, I ended up on remand, you know, at one point. It was, it was only a couple of weeks, but I ended up on remand. I was unstoppable. I was just causing more and more trouble. And um, I thought I was going to, I was thought I was definitely going to have a custodial sentence. Thank God I never. Um, but after that point, you know, my mum, her life was falling apart. She, um, you know, and although that, I'll never forget this, although that was happening her, you know, her marriage had fallen apart, my dad had left, and she was struggling financially, but she still, although she was going through her own stuff, she knew I needed support, she, I needed help. And once she knew that I wanted to join the Royal Marines, she, she had absolutely did everything she could to help me on that journey probably to get rid of me but <laughs> but um it, it was amazing and um you know she used to take me to my cross-country events and my athletics events but one thing she did is she used to take me to derby and she used to uh take me to the careers office it was seemed like it was every week but yeah i was in, i was in there and it was um it was interesting because i was so passionate about being a raw marine commando and i got in there and there was a a, a navy officer female and she sat me down one day and she said so let's say you get in the marines then what do you want to do once you're in and i got all the brochures and everything i can remember opening the book and there was a picture of this special forces soldier well there's a picture of a, of a mini sub and there was a picture of a combat swimmer special forces combat swimmer going to the sub and i went i want to do that and she looked at me and she just laughed. And she went, everyone wants to do that. And then she closed the book. So that for me was like, although I still thought, you know, I could never, you know, it was still a dream. It's still, that was, that was, uh, although I didn't possibly, you know, I thought the journey was too hard to get to that. 
you know, it was still something that held a special place in my head, but that was amplified by her saying that I couldn't do it. You know, that seed was then sown. That seed was sown. What does it take to be a Marine? It takes, and I say this with tongue-in-cheek, but it takes an extreme amount of discipline. (laughs) It takes a lot of motivation. It takes a lot of courage. And it takes, above all, belief. Yeah. So then you you get into the Marines. Did you you serve whilst you were in the Marines? Did you have to serve to do the the special forces? Yeah, I went to, I mean, I joined the Royal Marines and um, I got through 32 weeks of training. This is back in 1989, I joined up. 32 weeks of training, I actually passed out finally. And the proudest moment for me was, you know, seeing my mum there and her watching me, you know, pass pass out and, and get my Green Beret as a Royal Marine Commando, you know, where... You know, seeing how much trouble I got into as a kid, many people, even the police, were like, he'll be back. You know, they'd kind of written me off already. But I wasn't, and it must have been, it was such a proud moment for my mum that day, seeing me pass out as a Royal Marine Commando. Um, From there, I went straight over to Northern Ireland. And that that, that was a big, that was probably my biggest shocker, to be quite honest, because when I joined, there was a brochure. And in my brochure, there was young men in uniform looked pristine and I just thought god all the chicks will love that <laughs> and then I saw another guy who was like windsurfing on a little holiday in the Caribbean or somewhere and nothing prepared me for Ireland you know what I mean Ireland although they called it a conflict it was a war it's, it's, it's a war people are trying to work and I consider that's quite black and white if someone's trying to kill you and you're going to do what you can to defend yourself and kill them if, if necessary then that to me is a war I don't care what you call it but getting out there, you know, Northern Ireland, um, the, first, the first couple of nights in, um, we were on a quick reaction force. So anything that happened in the region, we would jump on a helicopter, go straight out there, deal with it. And um, I was, when I look back now, I was 19 years old. I mean, geez, I can't imagine my son at war. You know, it's just like, I can't believe I was that young. And um, that first night we got in, something had happened. A bomb had gone off. We were straight onto the helicopter, straight out. And um, the IRA, the IRA had, uh, had driven a, a, a truck bomb or a car bomb into a checkpoint. Totally obliterated the whole of the checkpoint. It was a 500-pound bomb. And the, off, the offcoming guard, which was the Coldstream guards, that had killed about five or six. But I can always remember we got down on the ground and one of our sergeants got out, Sergeant Clare, and he was like... Um, he'd been to the Falklands. He was pretty, you know hardened and those kind of things we were still in a state of shock there was just mayhem everywhere and um i remember he gathered, gathered everyone in and he booted something on the floor he said we need to see if we can find any more of these and we looked down and it rolled and as it stopped it was a head inside a helmet and that for me was like that wasn't windsurfing on a beach you know what i mean that was like my first introduction as a young boy to war that's where i crossed that bridge and it was a bit of a shock, really. A hell of a shock, actually. Um, and then we had a pretty, after that, you know, we had a pretty colourful, they tried 19 times to kill us. Um, didn't succeed, but um, it, was, it was an interesting tour. But one thing I did learn on that, which kind of changed my view, and I think this was really, when I look at it, it was the catalyst for me wanting to join the Special Forces. I can remember looking across the ground one day and I don't know why I had it. It was just like an epiphany. It was just like something that came into my head. 
And they used to give us all these sort of tasks, all these missions every day to go and do. I sat there one day and I went, there are no tasks. There are no missions. We're bait. And that's, to this day, I still believe that. You know, we're bait. We're being put on the ground because they want the IRA to attack us. And then from that, that's where they build their intelligence. You know, the activity creates the intelligence picture. So for me, it was like, I just thought I'm just cannon fodder. It wasn't sharp enough. It wasn't the sharp enough. It wasn't the sharp. It, it wasn't, the, you know, I needed to be on the sharper end of this, end of the spear, whatever you want to call it. And uh, so I kind of lost a little bit of interest from that point on. You know, I, it kind of devalued me. I was just, I felt like cannon fodder. So when we got back from that, we, you know, we went on two weeks leave, or not two weeks, it was like six weeks leave, but it got caught sh cut short. And then we got caught over to Iraq, uh, Operation Desert Storm. And again, that was, although we had, a, there was a few things, we went to the village, we went into some of the villages in the mountains where the Kurds were, and some, there were some atrocities done, you know, some things that I, I can't even describe to this day, um, done to the, to the Kurds up in the mountains so again that was a shock uh but you know it's it's part of the uh part of the education you know it's part of my indoctrination into that that world but i came back from there you know and although it had high you know certain things happened and it was great it wasn't enough it just wasn't enough and it got to that point where i started to lose belief in myself and the whole just the just the thought that i, I could be in the special forces i thought nah that's that's not i'm not I prepared to, to embark on that journey. I just didn't believe in myself enough. And I put my notice in to leave at that point. You know, I'd had enough. And I think I had six months left to do, even less than that. And I ended up bumping into my former officer from who I served with in Iraq. And uh, he was at my brother's pass out. My brother passed out as a helicopter pilot. He was a brainy one. And... Um, I saw him there and he said, what are you up to? I said, well, I'm leaving. And he said, no, are you kidding me? And I said, yeah, I said, it's not for me. And he says, mate, he said, you've got something. I don't know what it is, but you've got something. I believe you've got what it takes for the special forces. If you leave now, you regret that for the rest of your life. And those words from someone that I respected changed me, changed me straight away, you know, inspired me. Someone gave me a bit of confidence when I was lacking it. And that was phenomenal. And that gave me just that little inch of confidence to change my whole mindset and think. And just the thought of you will regret that for the rest of your life. They're powerful words, really powerful words. And if it wasn't for him saying that, I wouldn't be sat here today and I wouldn't, I'd be leading a very different life, whatever that would be. Um, but that was the one turning point. I then went and got back. I, I took out my notice to leave. And within a month or two months, I was down at Hereford starting Special Forces Selection. One of the youngest lads there. Crazy. Um, I, I want to touch on the Special Forces, but just just uh, briefly, mm. those first two tours, you, you had already started working on your mindset. Obviously, you're at war, like you're starting to work on your mindset. Um, for me, when like as a normal civilian, I'm thinking if I was in that situation, I don't. I'd be thinking about being at home all the time. And, I'm, and you've spoke about this, like you trained your mind to never go to that place. 
what other things was you do, using um, your mind and, and how, how was you using your mind when you was at war to sort of get through those times? To be honest, when I look back now, I realised that I think I have always been that way orientated and I don't know why it is, but still to this day, I mean, it wasn't something I was conscious of. It's all about mindset. It was just something that came naturally to me. But really, I mean, the thing with war, um, the, the one thing I managed to always, and I've always done this for whatever reason, is I, I, don't, I don't get lost in the journey. It's always, always has been the vision of who and where I want to be. So whether that came to missions, you know, in Iraq or, or in Northern Ireland, it was about where I wanted to be. It was the visualization of what we wanted to create, the end result. And that for me was always the anchor that pulled me forward. So regardless of what happened in here, I've always had a mission, a goal. We were mission driven anyway, and we we're always given a mission on the ground. It was that mission, that goal that I would always focus on. Because if you don't have a focus on a goal or a mission, and this is generally in life, you will find that you end up becoming a victim of your circumstances. You get lost in the journey. Something happens, something major happens, and you become a victim of your circumstances because you've got nothing bigger pulling you through. So really, for me, it's all always been about the fact that I visualize where I want to be when times are tough, when times are hard, when things are going really wrong. I visualize, I've got a vision of where I want to be, and it's that one thing that pulls me through, and I don't get bogged down in the situation. Do you think, I mean, it's, I think that's unbelievable, but again, it's that thing of like, it being in the circumstances you was in, to have that, that mindset's crazy. Do you think that other people can have that? Or is it, is it something you've got to train or something you've got to learn? No, you've got to train. Everyone's got it. But the thing is, you, right, you go to any kind of event, you go to a corporate speaking event or whatever, you'll say, right, someone will say, a trainer will say, hands up here, who's got a goal? And you'll get some that put the hand up, some who like half do because they don't want to look stupid. And then you get the rest that just don't, so they don't. What people don't understand, right, that our subconscious is a goal-striving, goal-getting machine and it will not stop it. It will not stop until it gets exactly what your dominant thoughts focus on. It doesn't matter who you are, we are all goal-driven. All of us. But the thing is, some people have a chosen goal and some people just leave it to the massive confusion that's going on inside, which delivers them to something that they don't usually want. We are by default, negatively wired. And the reason for that, it comes down to our evolution. Our evolution, as far as evolution is concerned, it wants us to keep doing what we did yesterday and the day before, because as far as it's concerned, that's what's kept, it, kept us alive until today. It doesn't give a shit if you're happy or sad, whether it's a good situation or not. It wants to keep us in a repeat habit loop, okay? So if you're thinking negative thoughts, and we do, because we're wired that way, if you're thinking negative thoughts, you will keep getting more of that. You will keep getting more and more of that. And you have to change your mindset around that. And the only way you can do that is by having clearly defined goals. Because if you don't have a clearly defined goal, what are we giving to you? And that will be based on what your thoughts are. Okay, so then we go to, from the Marines, and you've, you've gone for the Special Forces. We, special Forces selection, can you explain what that is? Because it's kind of, it was crazy to hear. Yeah, Special Forces Selection is basically a process by which it's a process of elimination. 
Um, there's a very low, low percentage of people that pass. I think it's within the sort of 3% um, kind of rate. Um, 350 started mine. I was one of five that passed. But it's a six-month process where basically, yeah, you have to be physically strong. Some people say, is it physical or mental? For me, mind and body go together. One doesn't come without the other. You know what I mean? You can't just be physically strong and expect to do anything. You've got to have the mental drive to be able to get you to it. So really, even from the outset, you have to have a high level of physical ability. But you also have, a, have to have a mindset that allows you to endure long periods of dis discomfort without taking the easy way out. And that all comes down to the mind. So really, selection is... Initially, it's a thrash up and down the mountains in Wales. Uh, once you pass that, you lose about 30% um, or no, even more than that, about 50% of the course just on that phase. It's a couple of weeks. And then once you pass that, I mean, that is the heavy packs, miles and miles and miles each day doing, the, you know, increasing the mileage. I think by the end of it, by the end of two weeks, you've covered 100K with um, massive amounts of kit on your back, weapon. You then, once you pass that, you then go out to the jungles. So you learn how to live in the jungle for six weeks when you've got no, um, no luxuries. Probably a toothbrush is your best luxury. And um, once you pass that phase, you kind of, once you've got through the jungle, they, can, they pretty much start looking at the people that have got that far, thinking now we've got a credible bunch to play with. Once you've done that, you do all your rudimentary skills, um, you do all your helicopter training, all your um, building assault skills, all kinds of different planes, trains, automobiles, all that kind of stuff. And then the final thing, you, you do your demolitions, you do your communications. Final session or final phase is an escape innovation across the Welsh mountains. And that is a realistic scenario to recreate what it'd be like if you were being chased down by the enemy behind enemy lines. Um, which is then culminates with you being captured and then um, going through resistance to interrogation, questioning for 36 hours, which is extremely horrendous. So it's a six-month process, and um, it weans out 98, 97% thereabouts. So you do, you do all this the first time around, and right at the end, it, was it right at the end? Yeah. Two days I had left. Two days I had left, and there's certain rules on the SAS, uh, the final phase. No civilian contact, no, um, no civilian contact, no buildings, no vehicles. Now, they're the rules, but, you know, as a Special Forces soldier, you don't follow the rules, and that's realistic. You know what I mean? The reason Special Forces um, achieve such a high degree of their missions is because they just do whatever they need to do to get the job done. They don't follow rules. Um, so, you know, when it comes to selection, you know, there are rules there, but you, you break the rules to get the job done. And unfortunately for us, we managed, we got a vehicle one night and, uh, we were almost at the end before we got snatched and going into the bag, which means the 36 hours of, uh, question. And, um, we'd been on the run for days. You, you, you sleep up in the day and you travel at night. You've got nothing apart from... World War One fatigues, no socks in your boots, it's freezing, uh, it's pretty horrendous and you've got to cover so many miles every night to get to the next agent, next agent. So we, one day, we got a, a lift off a farmer, nice Welshman called Glenn, even remember his name, and uh, 
he gave us a lift and he was extremely drunk. And uh, he dropped us off on this hill. And it was in the middle of the night, there was helicopters flying over with big searchlights in the local area. There was dogs you could hear. There was a whole hunter force out there looking for us. And um, he, he stopped to let us out and he opened his door. Then we heard a thud. And then there was nothing. No one came to open the thing because we couldn't get the thing open. So anyway, one of the lads kicked, kicked the doors open. They flew open and we just ran into the woods, got away. And we're like, yes, got away with it. Anyway, the next day we got called into the next agent contact or rendezvous. Um, it was quite strange because the training team that we'd been with for the previous six months were there and they were like, you know, it's usually people you don't know. And anyway, they said, right, come with us. And we had a field interrogation and it was like, where you been? And I was like, oh, you know, just doing the, the escape and evasion stuff. Yeah. And he says, oh, so you don't know Glenn? I was like, mm, no. And anyway, he named the dog, the cat, the wife, everything. And it was like, quite, he said, you better tell us what you've been up to. Otherwise, you're never coming back. And I ended up saying, right, yeah, we've been in a farmhouse. So anyway, we got booted off the course. What had happened is Glenn had fallen out of the vehicle. And uh, he'd fallen over, smashed his head. And then he went to hospital and said, he, and, and said to the police that he'd been beaten up by the SAS. So because of Glenn, we were like, thrown off the course two days to the end so then uh, so you, you, you decide to do it again which is crazy so you decide to do it again and then that time wasn't smooth either so at, at, what, at what point did you um, injure yourself the start you know the start which is through the break i mean the, the the decision as well to to go back again that was a that was a massive decision it wasn't like you know because you come a, such a, a long way you know it's not just six months it's it's the journey before that and the emotional stress and the emotional pressure to then go, I'm going to do that all again. It wasn't that kind of decision for me because I was going to go outside. I was going to like be a civilian. So I was, do I, do I go back or do I give it another go? But I think one thing that happened is that, that those words echoed again. If you don't do it, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. So that got me back there. But anyway, yeah, the first week I was back in the first week, on the Brecon Beacons, I came down the slate track, massive pack on my back. I was trying to beat the guy in front. I was smashing the times. And as I came down, I, I, I stepped on a slate that slid under my foot and my foot went 90 degrees. And I could feel all the tendons snap down the side. And I thought, fuck. Uh, anyway, I got down to the bottom. Medics took my boot off. And as soon as they took the boot off, my leg just went, just came out. I can remember seeing the training team, one of the training team walk past and he just went to the other guys, he went, finished. I was like, fuck, I'm not finished, I'm not finished. I can't allow this to, to um, end this journey. And that night I got called in front of the training officer. You know, I, I was still cracking on, I was strapped it up and all that. I was in a great deal of pain. That night I got called in front of the training officer and said, uh, I want to take you off the course. And I went, why? He said, because with that leg you're going to fail. And he said, if you fail a march, that means, because it already been once, he said, if you fail a march on a medical, or, or sorry, not on a medical, if you fail a march because you've failed a time, one of the times, you can never come back again. He said, so I want to let you go on a medical withdrawal, which means you can come back and do the next course. And I stood there and I just said, no, I'm not doing it. And it almost got heated, you know, he almost turned into an argument where he basically said, you're an idiot. He says, you, you're not going to pass. Think for me, at that point, it was now or never. 
you know what I mean? If I went back again, I'd have lost interest. And it was either now or never, I'd have preferred to take the risk of fail the time than actually go away again and come back again. And for me, I was like, I'm going to do this. And uh, anyway, he said, right, well, it's in your own hands then. Finally, let me out of the office. And then the next day, honestly, it was like horrendous. I had this strapped up. I took loads of brufen. I was like dropping brufen all the time, just painkillers, and I was in tears. I was going across the mountains in Wales, and I was actually in tears getting the times. But I managed to get the times. And then over the, you know, over time, it started to strengthen up. But, you know, initially, again, it was that short-term discomfort for long-term gain. You know, I wasn't prepared to take the short-term comfort. But it was that one thing that got me through then. And then I actually completed that course all the way through to the end, which is one of seven. What's, um, what's going through your head? Uh, you, you, your ankle, I mean, if you've ever had a sprained ankle before, never mind like tearing tendons, stuff, but if you've ever had a sprained ankle, walking on it's near impossible. So what, what, are you, what is going through your head? What's the motto going through your head whilst that's every single step is painful? What are you saying to yourself? I've just got to try and switch off. You've got to try and channel that energy. The more you focus on the foot, you know, the more you think about the foot, the more you're going to um, be consumed by the pain of it. So it was, I was using everything. I can remember Nina Cherry, seven seconds to... Seven seconds away, Nina Cherry. Do you, do you, can you, do you know? Yeah. And that was going through my head all the time. Seven seconds away because I knew how close I was to the line. And for me, it was like just repeating that song all the way through and just the whole vision of, of getting across the finish line. You know, and every time I, I spent time just focusing, allowed my mind to go towards the pain, you get consumed by the pain. You know, it's trying to tell you to stop. So it's all about disengaging that energy and pushing it somewhere else but it's a that was a constant battle if you're enjoying this podcast episode with ollie ollerton please consider heading over to mulliganbrothers.com where you can support the inspire change movement by buying an inspire change t-shirt which allows us to fly around the world to interview as many people as we possibly can to inspire change worldwide so you, you fight through it and you, I'll, I'll ruin the end of the story, you pass, which is uh, un, unreal. So you, yeah. you get that pass. You're in, you're in special forces. So what, what happens when you get, like, where, where do you go when you, when you um, get selected? Yeah, when, when I, uh, I mean, for me, going back to 1980, the embassy, you know, men in black, abseiling into a building and taking the, you know, taking the building, that was just for me, was like, I wanted that. That's what I wanted. That, to me, meant special forces. So for me, I, the, the team I joined, I mean, when you, when you pass SAS selection, you then decide whether you go to SAS or SBS. I want to go to the SBS. The SBS is more focused around water. Um, and for me, it had lots more toys. So mini subs, all that kind of stuff, diving. You know, that, that for me was a lot more... I had a passion for that, for whatever reason. Um, so I went to the SBS. You then go off and do more training. You have to do all your combat course, you know, learning demolitions underwater, all that kind of stuff, navigation underwater, um, uh, focusing on different insertion techniques, uh, using um, maritime craft and all that. So there's a lot of training. And then, for, and then, then finally, once you pass that, you then go to the SBS. So then you join your team. Um, and that's it. You then, selection doesn't train you to be a special forces soldier. 
it gives you some very basic skills in the special forces world to be able to join a team. It's when you join a team that you become a special forces soldier. You're now um, able to to be worked with, to trained up, to be trained up as a you know as a member of a special forces team, as an operator. So really, from that moment on, it's almost like you look back and go, Jesus, selection was quite easy. Not easy in, as in physically easy, but you know you, you knew what you were doing and stuff. When you actually join a team the training you have to go through, you know, different skills, different weapon systems, different kind of technology, whether that's communications, whether that's um, GPS equipment, whatever it is, you just, it's constant, constant learning languages, learning medical, there's loads, absolutely loads to take on. Um, But for me, you know, my, the moment I knew I was in the special forces was was the first operation I went on, which was unreal it was brilliant you know but because until that point i'd just been training 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 it wasn't i just wanted to do the job and it was like i had a pager you know i was fully qualified i had a pager pages you know so basically i was on 30 30 minutes notice to move it's in the uk so i couldn't leave i could leave camp but i had to be 30 minutes from camp um so basically i had this pager and it was a friday afternoon and we just left i was just out for the week gone for the weekend and i think it was friday around about four o'clock or something like that pager went off and sometimes you have a drill you know if it's drill you just have to phone up and it's just a drill process but if there's a certain code on your pager it's happening and for me i picked up that pager thinking it was a drill and i saw the code and i was like holy shit it's like this is real so i went straight back to camp we went straight into a mission brief and before we knew it, helos came in. We got all our kit packed on. We went up to a forward operating base um, closer to the, uh, the target area. Um, and from there, we, 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 it's a place similar to this, like a big open hangar where we basically mounted all our intelligence. We went through our set up our area for rehearsals. So all the time you're waiting to, to, for the mission to go down, um, you were spending that time training up, using every second spare to, to, to get ready for the mission ahead. Any kind of training, you just, you're just doing it constantly. You know, any updates on intelligence coming in. And then later that night, well, it was actually early hours of the following morning, we got the call to go and mounted onto the helicopters, all dressed in black, balaclavas, night vision goggles, short stubby machine guns and it was just fucking unreal um on that job i was in the helicopter team and we're hitting a target out at sea and um we had boats coming up back of the vessel we were the helo team which would go over the top of the vessel we were fast fast rope out straight onto the target and uh it was unreal we uh we hit the target probably about just before dawn you know you you hit the target just before dawn so that you can smash it in the dark and then by the time you've taken the ship you've got the natural light to be able to do the the exfil and um i can remember looking down from the helo like i wasn't first man but the guys are gone the, the the fast rope dropped out and you're not you're not attached to the fast rope apart from your hands so you've got all your body armor on you've got all your ammunition you've got grenades you've got your machine gun the whole lot and all that's keeping you on that rope is your hands and you slide and you use that to break and to slow you down and i can remember looking down the ships doing this because the seas were that rough 
and you basically had to time it. The fast rope was down there and it was coming across like that. And you had to time it so that you would land on the boat as it was coming over its 12 o'clock position. It was hideous. Any, any wrong move, you'd have been off the side. And so basically it came my turn and I got onto the, got onto the vessel and, um, and then we took the shit down and, uh, it was, it was, it was, it was unreal, unreal. And then just the next morning, you know, just about half an hour after we took the ship and, uh, all teams were on board, you know, the sun was coming up in the horizon, helos came in and just lifted us off. It was just like surreal. And that's when I knew I was in the special forces. Is there a, a mission or a moment that sort of encapsulates what um, being special forces is that you, you remember yourself? But that is it. That is it. For me, you know, it's like, for me, like doing all that specialist skills training, you know, like the counter, for me, counterterrorism and all that kind of training that's involved with that, that for me is a special forces soldier. Some of the work that we used to do, like getting to your target, like, you know, subsurface under the, with a rebreather on so there's no bubbles, you know, at night getting to your target. That to me is special forces. It's, it, it's, it's a unique set of skills. And to do it with the precision and the, the teamwork that you're working within is just like something like I've never experienced in my life ever. It's almost like you've got, it's almost like you're telepathic. You're that trained up with the people around you, it is seamless. And just as you think someone, something, you know, that area is not covered, there's someone moving to it, you know, it's just like, it's like, like, it's like a symphony of people. And for me, you know, doing all that specialist skills, I mean, going from A to B to a target under the sea at night to hit a target like a ship or whatever it was, that for me is like special forces. That is, that is a unique set of skills. So you, you come out of Special Forces. How, how long was you in Special Forces for? Six years. So I did 11 years total. So I was five years in the Royal Marines and then six years in the Special Forces. But to be quite honest, you know, I was like, and I say this in my books, you know, it didn't do it for me. You know what I mean? And I wanted more of it. You know, I was, I was in around the time where there wasn't the Iraq war. Well, there wasn't Iraq. There wasn't Afghanistan. So for me, there wasn't enough of it. There was, you know, we'd have bits and bobs here and there. And that was just the norm. Um, but for me, I wanted to be at the, I wanted to be at the coalface every day. That's what I thought was missing. But I knew there was something missing. There was something missing that I didn't feel complete. And for someone that, you know, if I could have look, looked at that as a kid before I even joined, I'd be like, that is, that'd be everything for me. And a lot of people do think that. Joining the Special Forces would be everything. If I could do that, that would tick every box and I would be totally happy. I'd never want to leave. But I got there and it wasn't like that. There was something missing. Well, do you think that stems from having a, an unfulfilled appetite for success or want, wanting more? No, I know exactly what it is. But, you know, this is from hindsight. Hindsight never won any wars, but it gives you a good reflection. And for me, this is where people get it so wrong. We are all chasing an image. You know what I mean? I was chasing an image of a Special Forces soldier and how that would look. And I was forgetting the one fundamental thing that is so much far more important than that and that's a feeling it should be the feeling you're chasing not the image you know people want the perfect house the perfect job all this that and the other the perfect marriage or whatever it is but that's an image in your head it doesn't mean that when you get there you're going to feel that same passion for it we all know everyone knows that a lot of the time you, you have this visualization of how something might be whether that's going out for the night, going to your favourite club or whatever, and it's always totally different when you get there. You know what I mean? So if you get too attached to the image of what you want, 
you're going to end up being disappointed when you get there. But for me, I hadn't found my purpose at that point. And I didn't know anything about purpose at that point. I didn't go, oh, I haven't found my purpose. It's just something that wasn't connecting. And for me, something was missing. And I didn't know what it was. And I thought I was having mental health problems. You know, I thought, you or there's something wrong with you. If you can't enjoy this, what you're doing, jumping out of planes at night, which is, you know, parachuting through the sky in the dark, skydiving, and, you know, all these, all these things I was doing was amazing. You know, why wasn't I enjoying that? So then the, your chase for that, for that next thing carried on. So then you went into, was it pri private military or? Yeah, but that's the thing, you know, I, I mean, when I came out, I wanted to do something totally different. I've always wanted my own business and I always wanted to, I've, I've always wanted to create my own path. And it's something I still do to this day because we're so trained, you know, I don't want to follow someone's footsteps. I want to create footprints. You know I mean? That's with everything I do. So, you know, it was about uh, redefining myself, re you know, recreating something new. So for me, it was about learning about business and this, that, and the other. And I thought that would be the security industry. So I'll start my own things. I'll start my own security company, you know, and providing people for uh, VIP security and stuff in London. And then the Iraq war kicked off. And then for me, although I said I'd never gone do that, the money was phenomenal. You know, and I look back now, it's still like a, a phenomenal, you know, I was being paid 13,000 pounds a month tax-free back in 2003. I mean, that is just ridiculous. Um, and especially after coming off a military wage. But the thing is, you get drawn to the money. It was all about the money. For me, it's money, money, money. I was driven by money because my complete lack of it all my life. You know, even the military, you don't get paid enough. And for me, I've got an expensive taste. So <laughs> the military was never going to be good enough for me. Um, but, you know, for me, it was about chasing the money. And, uh, you know, as soon as the Iraq opportunity came up, then, well, it pays loads. You know what I mean? That was the drive. That was the drive. And now, you know, looking back now, I call that fool's gold because it's fool's. You're a fool for chasing the dollar. And, you know, I can go into that later. But, you know, you, when you get to Iraq and you get to a war zone, you understand why they pay you so much money. Uh, but, yeah, that was the draw. I then went out to, to I left everything back. You know, I left my son. I left my wife, which, yeah, that, that marriage was just falling apart, it seems, anyway. So it was a natural thing for me to accept to go over to Iraq. Uh, it was a shame that my son became a byproduct of that decision, but I live with that. Um, but, yeah, I went over to Iraq, and that's where I then set up shop, if you want to call it that. And we were working for major infrastructure projects, so we put the first GSM mobile network back into, into Iraq. And we were running these big projects. We turned up with a small infrastructure of ex-special forces, uh, only a few of us. And, and before long, we'd recruited an army of 2,000 Iraqis, and we were training them in, in bodyguard skills, weapon skills. And we got them to do all the work for us, basically. They were, they were a local face on the ground, and that's how we conducted operations. And it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I mean, those times in, in the book, you talk about some of those times and they sound absolutely crazy. Like, could you tell us some of the stories that was going off at the time? Yeah, I mean, when you look back at now, I mean, this is the, it's the Wild West. It was just a recreation back in, you know, John Wayne Wild West. It was just crazy. You know, the Americans were just flooding the place with US dollars. You know, I was down at, at watching like million dollar stacks coming off there, which were, they were just flooding into, into the communities. You know, so... The big American green, green eyed machine had, had moved in and it was just everyone was just fighting for a dollar. You know, everyone was taking their opportunities because they didn't know where the next lot was coming from. And when things like when a, when a country falls apart, you really everyone is just out for the kill. 
You know, so those times were absolutely crazy. I mean, the first time I got, it was quite early on, the first time I got into Baghdad and, um, oh, on my way to Baghdad. And, um, oh, sorry, I got into Baghdad. Initially, I was working for ABC News before I did the infrastructure projects. And um, it was around the time that the statue came down of Saddam in Firdos Square. And um, everyone perceived that the war was over. You know, the, the Americans had, had uh, saved the day and uh, the war was over. As we now know, the war, the war had really just begun. Um, but there was this sort of misconception of the security threat at that time in Baghdad or Iraq in general. So because we were so expensive, you know, our, our employees always tried to cut down or, or, or reduce staff whenever they could. And I was the team leader at ABC News at that moment in time. And I was asked to, to do a job that day. And uh, the job was to pick up the, the oncoming ABC bureau chief from, uh, from Jordan. Jordan is a 14-hour drive. There was no flights because of the surface-to-air missile threat. So it's the only way you could get there. And straight away, I said to the, the current ABC bureau chief, I said, right, yeah, we can do the job. How many can I take with me? And he said, one other. And I went, one other. I said, we were picking up 12 people. I expected to at least take as many as we got and leave one, probably one there. When it, it doesn't take a military tactician to understand that you don't have two people looking after 12, it's usually the other way around. But anyway, because I didn't want to upset the... Uh, uh, the honey jar, I took the job on. And um, that next day we drove out, the two of us drove out to Jordan. And um, now I knew, I knew what was happening that day. And what was happening is the oncoming ABC bureau chief was coming in and one of his top line jobs, the top of his list was to, to um, assess the need for security. So I knew this and I thought, I was looking around me, you know, I'd given up everything to for that job. We all had, and we're all, all earning decent cash for once in our lives, a lot of, a lot of cash working for it, but we were earning it. And for me, the thought of that ending is not something I could conceive. And for me, again, like I say, you know, I always visualize the outcome, not the problem, the outcome that suits me. And so all the time, you know, I was driving to Jordan, it was 14 hours on and off with the other guy. I just sat there and I was just thinking how, what kind of events would change the events of time? What kind of events would influence that decision about him downsizing the security? So and I am, I know I am creative and I sat there and my little creative mind had a lot of time to think. So I thought through this scenario time and time and time again of how the events of the next 24 hours could change his decision. And that basically involved us getting attacked. And I totally absorbed this whole concept, immersed myself totally in it of how this whole thing would pan out. Went over and over it, over it in my head. I actually gave so much emotion and passion to it as if it had happened. So anyway, that, that night I get to the hotel and uh, I'm sat there with the, my number two and I'm like, we're just having a beer. The, the, uh, the, uh, the package is coming in at three o'clock in the morning for pickup, package being 12 people. And uh, I sat to, I had a beer. I got him one for about what I was about to tell him. And I said, you know what needs to happen tomorrow? And he went, well, I said, we need to get attacked. 
I didn't really want to get attacked. I want to make that clear. I didn't want to get attacked. But I just said tomorrow, you know, I was, I, was, I was in fantasy world, if you want to call it that. I said, we need to get attacked. I said, do you imagine this? This is a scenario. We leave the hotel tomorrow morning. We get across the border, which was always a nightmare. We're driving on our way to Baghdad. The hot spot still at that time was Fallujah, Fallujah and Ramadi. It's a no-go area. So I said, we get between uh, Ramadi and Fallujah and we're going to get attacked by the militia. The rounds are going to go down. We're going to get them out of it. They're going to see everything that happens. We're going to get them out of it. None of our side gets hurt. We're going to then get the cars to Baghdad at speed. I said, we're going to get to the compound. The doors are going to fly open. There's going to be a hero's welcome. There's going to be champagne. There's going to be cheers. There's going to be everything. And then we're going to get the contract signed. And he laughed and I bought him another beer. And I was serious. I was like, that's what needs to happen. Imagine if that happened. And we talked about it. You know, we went to, I went into so much detail that even when the rounds went down in the vehicle, I could smell the cordite from the bullets. I, could, I added emotion to it. You know, at the end, I could taste the champagne. I could feel the handshake. I added every emotion, sight, or every sense, every, every you know, hear, taste, smell, touch. All of them. I employed all of that in my, in my journey, my visual journey. Anyway, we then woke up at three o'clock in the morning. The next morning, package turned up. We got into the vehicles, three vehicles in front of us, one vehicle behind it, which was ours. At that point, we never had any weapons because we're still in Jordan. Um, and uh, we made our way to the border. As predicted, we got to the border. Absolute nightmare. That's predictable. Just got on the other side of there. We then went off probably... Half an hour after the um, hop over the border, pulled the vehicles over. We actually had what's known as a cache in the military. You call it cache, whatever, which is a hole in the ground where we had all our weapons dug in. So we went off to get them, dug them all out, and then we had all our weapons. So I had a little MP5 Kurtz, which was beautiful little, very handy for vehicle drills, and which sits nicely on your lap. Some people prefer lap dogs. I like a machine gun. But anyway, um, so anyway, we then got back in the vehicles. So I had my number two, but we got a body armor on. We got shirts over our body armor. All our vehicles are clean skin. Um, so that means, or soft skin, sorry. All our vehicles are soft skin. So that means the bullets come in. They're not armored. And civilian. And uh, anyway, we're the back vehicle. Got number two behind me with an AK-47. And um, that was it on our way to Baghdad. Anyway, it's probably 10, 11 hours in and we've been swapping over and stuff. And I forgot about everything. I was just that tired. I was so tired. My head nearly hit the wheel. You know, I, was, I fell asleep. Head nearly hit the wheel and I thought, shit, I need to spark up some conversation, keep myself awake. So I said to, to the guy in the back, Dave in the back, I said, uh, I said, mate, when we get back, we'll have debriefed and I'm going to get to the gym. And he went, yeah, mate, that's, that's a good idea. I'll do the same. I'll do the same. As I did that, I noticed something flashing in the rearview mirror. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. It was dusk. And there's not many cars on the road at that time anyway. Um, it was a three-lane highway on both sides, central reservation here. We were on the inside lane closest to the central reservation, doing about 120 k's an hour. And I noticed this flash in the, headlight, in the, in the, in the rearview mirror. And anyway, I looked again, and I could see what was clearly clearly another vehicle flashing its lights 
constantly. And I sat there and I thought I was negating everything that it could be and trying to make or trying to create what I wanted it to be. And at first I said, hey, Dave, stand by. There's something coming up from, uh, from behind. So we had a look as well. And I said, and then we both said, look, it's probably the Americans. And they got closer and closer and you realised it was a black vehicle, black Mercedes. And there was another vehicle further behind that. And um, straight away, we knew it's probably not the, well, it's not the American military. So then we thought it's another security company. So we started to think about how we're going to get out of that lane to allow these people to pass. And it got closer and closer. And then as it got probably um, about 20 foot behind our vehicle, I saw all the windows go down. All the windows started coming down. And you could just see down the side, as I looked, I could just see the headdress, Arab headdress. You just see the slits of the eyes. And as soon as I saw that, AK-47s came out from every window of the car behind us. And at that point, I can remember passing the sign that said Ramadi. At that point, I was like, stand by, we've got, you know, enemy behind. Um, and at that point, they let out a burst of fire. Now, if you've heard an AK-47, it's quite intimidating. But when you hear four, it's like an orchestra from hell. And it was like, I actually shit myself. You know, and I shit myself for for more more reasons than one, and that's just the fact that you know, in the military, when you're in the special forces, you are invincible. You know, I mean, you can call, I can call in a, um, a um, I can call in naval gunfire out at sea for support. I can call in an airstrike, and at that moment, I was sat there thinking, I've got no one. I've got absolutely no one. I've got the responsibility of these twelve people in front. I've got the responsibility of the guy behind. And it was all down to me. And I was starting to get overwhelmed in that moment. And it took me to really snap out of that because I was like lost in, in how overwhelmed I was. And I was starting to freeze. I was starting to freeze. And if it wasn't for just, I made a mental, you know, it's, I think it was actually that gunfire. When I first that, heard the gunfire, I was like, you need to do something. And I snapped out of that sort of, that freeze. And at that point, it was about forgetting the responsibility of the people in front. It was about forgetting about the fear that was taking over me. It was about forgetting about what could go wrong because that's irrelevant. That's an emotional and mental rehearsal for what you don't want to happen. So why engage in it? I had to deal with that situation. And at that moment, I knew that they were trying to get us to pull over to the side of the road. We'd heard about these attacks before. They pull them to the side of the road. They kill everyone, take all the stuff. You know, take all the money. These ABC News, they had like camera equipment, they had wads of cash, all sorts of stuff, which they probably pinged at the customs, at customs anyway, and let them know. Um, but at that point, I had to do something, and the car's right behind me. Anyway, it wasn't something I thought about, but I just told the guy to stand by, and then aggressively, I turned the vehicle into the center lane. This then left a gap on my left-hand side, which they came alongside. I then increased speed to, to, to box the vehicle in behind the vehicle in front. So I had it trapped. And I can remember at that point, looking down, I can remember looking, I'm driving a vehicle. I have the, the MP5 Kurtz across here. I've got my hand on the steering wheel. I've got the closed window there and I'm looking down. I see this young kid. I could tell he was young because I could see his eyes. And he had a head, headdress on. And his AK-47 was slowly come down at me, but there was a moment I connected with his eyes. And I, still, I, will, I will never forget his eyes. 
And um, I've been in scrapes before, but never have I been close enough to touch someone before I've got to do what I've got to do. And I didn't want to do it. I really didn't want to do it. Um, and at that moment, unfortunately for him, his AK-47 was coming onto my head. And so was the guys behind. And it was do or die. And, and in that moment, I gave the order to open fire. And as soon as I did, I popped my weapon straight onto my arm and through the closed window, just let a burst go straight into the vehicle as I'm driving at 140 cases an hour. It was a mental moment, mental moment. Bullets rained down on their vehicle, which immediately caused them to stop. Um, the day behind, he opened fire at the same time. And then we increased speed, got on the comms, give a contact report, um, and then increased our speed to Baghdad. We looked in the rear view mirror of the car and gone to the central res reservation with all smoke coming out of the bonnet. And um, I can remember looking up as we're driving at speed, you know, it's all, all you've got is ringing in your ears from the amount of, from the loud bangs and stuff in the vehicle. And I can remember looking forward into the vehicle in front and there's the ABC bureau chief that had come to assess the need for security looking out the rear of the vehicle, just looking. And I thought that's done the job. <laughs> anyway, we get to Baghdad, the doors open. If the story couldn't get any weirder. And there it is, champagne reception, heroes welcome. And I can remember opening the door and I can remember hearing this like, almost like change falling on the floor. And I looked down at the floor and it was all our bullets from our, or our empty cylinders rolling out the car and all the, all the glass from the window. And I can remember looking down and then as I looked up, a guy came up to me with a glass of champagne. I took the champagne, I tasted the bubbles, tasted the taste of the champagne. And um, I thought, holy shit, I've been here before. It was exactly, exactly everything to the letter to timings, to the um, locations, everything. And at that moment, it's like the ABC bureau chief wants to see you upstairs. Now, when you, when you do that level of um, retaliation or, or you take those actions, you know, you're held accountable for those actions, you know, especially when you work for a company like ABC. So we, we didn't know what was waiting for us up at the, uh, in the bureau chief's office. So we went up there and um, both bureau chief uh, bureau chiefs were in there at that time and uh, the oncoming bureau chief just said look the actions you took were amazing I saw everything out there and basically from that point they slid papers across the table where we signed the contract for another two years now the reason I tell that story I don't take any glory from the actions that I took that day I was forced into taking those actions and the way I angle that is the fact that I saved people's lives you know and if I didn't they would be dead um but the reason that was such a monumental moment for me is it made me realize how powerful visualization, how powerful positive intent is. And since that moment, I have used that with passion and belief with everything that I've wanted to do. It's taken time to actually build it into um, my everyday processes, but it's that monumental moment that really changed everything. And it also made me understand that our lives are a product of our imagination. We can create the life that we want if we believe in it, if we visualize it. 
And if people don't believe that theory, you know, if, if, if they, they struggle with that, which a lot of people do, it's as simple as creating what you want into your subconscious. Like I talked about before, you know, our minds are a goal-striving, goal-getting machine that will stop at nothing till it gets what your dominant thoughts focus on. That's all you're doing. So for me, you know, when I do that, I'm planting what I want, the goal that I want in my subconscious. You would then subconsciously take decisions and take and, and, and make decisions and take actions that reflect your goal that is in your subconscious. That was a bit freaky that day because there was other aspects that contributed to that. But almost to me, it was almost like the universe telling me we need to show this guy that visualization works. And it stamped that in stone for me. I think um, you think Ollie Ollerton, Special Forces, talking about visualization is kind of a strange concept. I think it's amazing that it's you talking about it because it gives it more power. Um, the, the, the idea that you taste it, you smell it, you feel it, like a, we really believe here at Mullen Rivers in that concept. Um, how, how do you get... So you've, you've been shown it, like you say, by the universe, this works, this works. How, how do you get to the point where you were starting to have these thoughts and have these visualizations that you could, you could imagine what's going to happen in the future and really achieve those things. Well, when I look back, right, from that point, I spent a lot of time thinking after that. I mean, after that, it was like, forget everything that happened in that whole, you know, the, being shot out. Forget that. I've been shot out before, you know, it's, it was like, what really, I spent so long just thinking about what had just happened, as in, you know, the whole visualization thing, how it had played out. But then I look back on my life and it's been no different with everything else. It's the reason I passed Royal Marines training. It's the reason I did special forces selection, you know, and did it. You know, I kept on going till I passed against all odds. You know, I've been doing it all my life, you know, but, you know, so it, it, it was really just confirming. I mean, up until that point, I, I couldn't have said, I, I never said before that point, you know, we can visualize and we can create the life that we want through visualization. I, I'd have never said that. But because of that event, because it was so prolific, because it was so profound, to me, it, you know, anyone that tells me that it doesn't work, as far as I'm concerned, they're losing out. I've got, I've got no advantage telling people this stuff works. I'm just telling you from my experience what happened. You know, but now... I just, you know, a lot of this comes down, the more and more I see this on a daily basis, I feel that, you know what, when it comes to humans, we don't even know our true power. It's been so hidden from us by social programming, education, that we don't know our true power. And we have got so much, every person on this planet has a gift. Everyone has the same skills. Everyone has the ability to create the lifestyle that they want. And those amazing that amazing gift has been taken away from us because we've been programmed socially through education everything you know we we've lost our power how, how does someone actively do uh, work on visualization you start you start visualizing you start thinking about i mean the thing is look if i want to pass an exam a lot of people, the way we're going to, the way we're wired, and this comes down to evolution because we're always looking for the negatives. We all know that once you create an idea in your head, we always look for things that are going to go wrong. 
we don't sit there and focus about how great it's going to be when we get that. Whether that's starting a new business, relationship, whatever it is, whether it's taking your exams, you always think about the panic of not passing, the panic of what could go wrong. And that's what we end up visualising. You know what I mean? And it's about just changing that energy to be more positive. So really, it's the thing is with this, you'll get so many people that disbelieve and will never engage in it. But until they, when they do it once, they only need a little taste. And once they've got a little taste to know that this stuff really does work, that will change their life forever. You know, you guys must know yourself that happens. You know, once you get a taste that this stuff works, it's contagious, like you wouldn't believe. And that, you know, I could tell people, me and my partner, my fiance, Laura, we could tell people stories that they, no one would believe us. No one would believe a word. You know, the, the coincidences, if you want to call them that, they're not coincidences. Once you've got yourself lined up spiritually, once you've created that bandwidth that is way away from fear, because fear doesn't allow for creativity, the opportunities are already there. Everything's already lined up. A lot of people say in life that, oh, well, you know, I can't wait to, for the opportunities to line up. They're already there. It's you that's got to line yourself up. And that's when you come from a place of belief and when you're not living in a state of fear. And unfortunately, at the moment, it's amplified at the moment, fear is driving society through the news, through everything, through the current COVID pandemic. Fear is driving society because that's the only way you can control a society. We live in this, and you look at the news, you look at the newspapers, everything is fear. But once you disengage from that, I mean, I don't read any newspapers, I don't watch the news, I don't watch TV. If I do watch TV, it's very, something very specific, you know, a film or whatever. But I'm very conscious about the content that goes into here. And really, you know, once people have a, have a taste of visualization, you know, I do, I do online courses where I get people to sit down and meditate. For me, meditation, again, people think, how can this guy from the special forces meditate? That's, that's Glastonbury hippie stuff. Meditation for me is my focused attention at an intention. It's my moment for me to visualize, create calmness in here and be able to visualize in what I want. Okay, and once I learn to create that stillness of mind, it allows that clarity of vision to what I want. Our heads have 70,000 thoughts, probably more, going around each day. Now, if you don't focus on something that you want out of that 70,000 thoughts, you're going to end up with a load of crap that you don't want. And that's the problem with people. They allow the 70,000 thoughts just to be like this washing machine of ideas and they don't define what they want in life. So that's why they're basically just bouncing like a pinball from side to side, not knowing where they're going, and that's being decided for them. But it's just about creating clear vision and intent for what you want. And that, for me, you know, is such an important process and which came years later. That morning routine for me is, is a life changer. You know, it's where I set myself up for each and every day and I dominate each and every day. Today's podcast is sponsored by MulliganBrothers.com, where you can now buy the Not A Journal, the Inspire Change t-shirts, and the Hardest Worker In The Room t-shirts, which all support the Inspire Change movement. Thank you for all your support so far. 
Um, I, here, we, we definitely, when you say smell, taste, everything, you've lived that moment before it happens. Yeah. We, we believe that completely, like we really do. Like with this place and stuff like that, we've, we've already been here, we've already done it. And when you get it, you're not surprised by it or anything like that. It's just, it was meant to happen. Yeah. Um, one thing I loved that I think is really good for people who haven't tasted it before is, this will help them get out of bed in my opinion, is when you talk about getting out of your wet, ki your wet kit and getting into your dry kit and uh, how, you, how you used to visualise getting into yeah. your wet kit in the morning. So can you talk, can you talk about that point. and you how you did that? You know I forgot that, that point. <laughs> I, I loved it, I loved it. Yeah, no, a, a part of the jungle training is, is the fact that, you know, you operate throughout the, your daytime. One great thing about the jungle is the fact as soon as it goes dark, that you can't operate because it's so dense. You know, the, the foliage is so dense. So what you do, you set up a harbour position and then you put your hammocks up in darkness. And when the routine you go through every day is you always have a dry set of kit, always, you know, in your bag. So at the end of the day, when, you're, when you get into the jungle, your body starts to rot, you know. So by the end of six, you know, your feet are rotting, you absolutely stink. The ammonia and everything from you is, is disgusting. And one thing, one luxury, your only luxury you do have is that when it is dark, when you've set everything up in the dark, it's pitch black, you can't see a thing, and you've set up all your bed, your hammock, your bed system and everything, your overhead cover in the pitch black. You then reach into your, into your backpack and you pull out your dry kit, and your dry kit is just like heaven, absolute heaven. So you take your wet kit off, which is stinking, you put that in a bag, put that away, and then you put your dry kit on, and it's like unbelievable it's, it's it's just it's luxury beyond anything you've ever experienced before um but then the flip side to that is the next morning you know you have to have everything packed away in pitch black there's no alarm clocks or anything you know you're just working on your body clock you have to have everything away so that when the sun peaks it peaks over the horizon and there's any aspect of light whatsoever, you're all waiting with your weapons up ready, you know, ready to go. Um, because that's the most likely time of attack from the enemy. But the thing is, to get to that point, you then have to pull in your old wet kit from the day before. And in pitch black, you have to change out your dry kit, put your dry kit in a bag, put that back into your backpack, and then you have to put on your stinking wet kit and it is absolutely feral. You do this every day, every day. And it was the smell, it's just pungent. You're putting on this cold, wet, damp kit. And I just, every day, I just had to, I, I was saying to myself that message, and it was like, I love these Armanis. These are the best Armani. I look so good in these Armani. I wasn't saying it, but you know, that's going through my head. And that's the only way I got through it. And I just made it into something else. It's all about reframing. You know, it's still cold and it's still wet. But, you know, the whole mental game of me focus on the inconvenience and discomfort of it are gone. You know, I did that every day. It just helped me get through. And it's that messaging with everything, you know, that, that bleeds into every aspect of your life. It's just how you frame things. What's a, a simple way someone can apply that to their, to their life? Ah, simple way. I think, to be quite honest, I mean, it's like with everything, I mean let's try and relate this to people taking exams for instance or something like that you know if you're going to sit there and think 
you know, about how much the study is getting you down, how much you hate doing what you're doing, the more you focus in that, like I said to you before, you know, you're not focusing on your goal. You're not focusing on something different that pulls you out of that situation. So you're lost in your circumstances of that moment. You become a victim of them. You know what I mean? And the only way that internal messaging is just to get yourself through that is, is like, one thing I say about goals is, is not, a lot of times you have big, um, ballsy goals, and they should always be ballsy. It should be something that you doubt your ability to achieve. But the thing is, you should have mini goals. You know what I mean? A big goal should always, you never have a goal that you know you can achieve. You have a goal that scares the shit out of you. You should always have that. But the, the goal must be able to broken down into small chunks. So really it's about when you're going through that hard stuff, it's about creating a small short-term goal that gets you from moment to moment to moment. But it's that whole internal message. And if you sit there and you're studying for an exam or something like that, and you're focusing on how shit this is and how much time it's taken and how you're not enjoying it, you won't pass it. You said you don't want to get stuck in the picture. Yeah. But like a lot of people, when they think of visualization, they're going for the picture, not the feeling. How do you define the two and how, how do you stay away from getting obsessed with the picture as opposed to the feeling? That all comes down to purpose. At the end of the day, you've got to define what your purpose is. And the problem is when you're young and you haven't had many experiences in life, that means that you need to get out there and start putting your, start treading, you know, putting your, throwing yourself into loads of different experiences because you need to start defining what really makes you tick. So it's about defining your purpose. Initially, you, you've really got to step into the short-term discomfort for long-term gain and start doing things in life, you know, not be not start following someone else's path and be, you know, follow the program, so to speak. But, and then later in life, if you're like, had loads of experiences, it's about sitting down and writing down, write down all the things that really excited you. If you're, you need to define your purpose. What is your purpose in life? You know, once you do that, you, you define, you, you, you know, going back over history, what, where have I felt really good about myself? What have I enjoyed most? And then you will start to define your purpose. So that really all comes down to purpose. I mean, for me, I didn't find my purpose until 2011, you know, and that was when I was rescuing the kids from child prostitution and slavery in Thailand. And I didn't know, I didn't know the gift that that would give me, you know. So for me, I, you know, I wasn't searching for my purpose. I didn't know there was such thing as defining your purpose. At that point, I just thought I, would, I just couldn't find anything that would satisfy me. And, and my, my life was just haywire. You know, and then I went over to Thailand. We were involved in operations, rescuing kids from child prostitution, slavery, you know, and going and inf infiltrating enemy camps and, and getting the kids out. And that, for me, when I actually saw these kids then go to the orphanage, and then a week later or a couple of weeks later, you're seeing these kids, you know, very young kids walking down the street with a school uniform on and a satchel. And only weeks before, they were about to be sold into some kind of some brothel. That is fucking rewarding. Uh, yeah, I, I want to touch, I definitely want to touch on what you was doing in Thailand. Um, just on uh, finding purpose. You know, I think some people, I've had this conversation recently with somebody, um, we're talking about purpose, and they says, yeah, but I don't want to test that out. I, I, I think, I, I don't know what I want to do right now. And I think what you were talking about is perfect. You just need to, get, you need to live. That's yeah. how you find, how, how, for somebody who's in that mindset, is like, I don't know what to do though. What, what, what do they have to do? Well, you have to, you have to start getting experiences in life. 
you really have to start pushing the bar, whether that's travel, whether that's, you know, you, everyone will have a passion or a desire to be something. You know what I mean? And whether that's someone that wants to travel a lot, whether that's someone that wants to be in business, you've got to start pushing the boat out and start, start experiencing with things. You know what I mean? So you've really got to push the boat out and some experiences you're not going to enjoy. But you start noting down the things you do enjoy and before you know it, you can define a purpose of where you're supposed to be and what floats your boat. So, yeah, so w- towards the end of your career, you went up to Thailand. And, yeah. Yeah, can you just explain for that? And also that I, I remember there was a point where, for you, you'd really, like you said, you'd found your purpose. Just talk us through that, yeah. that particular occasion. No, I mean, I, got, I came back, I was in Iraq for six, seven years, and it was getting far too much on top. You know, the, the, some of the lads, we lost a couple of lads, and um, it was just, being in a war zone for six years, it's just far too much you are going to have mental health issues. It's like going back to... I mean, for us, we were going back to a prison every, every time we came away on leave and then we'd go back and it was, like going, it was like being in prison, self-imposed prison. We used to go out and stuff, but basically we had these villas that we'd, we'd put steel all on the inside of the house. So every, every time the bullets went down, we'd just lock ourselves in. Um, and it was all getting too much and I had to leave. Um, so I left and then I, again, like I did when I first left the... Special Forces, I thought, I need to get, I'm going to try and redefine myself. So I got into sort of property. I need to stay out of war zones, all this and the other. And I was getting into property, into real estate. And I just got so bored, so bored and something. And then I heard about the Grey Man, which was an organization that was rescuing kids from child prostitution and slavery that was operating in Southeast Asia. I was introduced to this ex-commando, Australian commando that was running the operation or it was his operation and basically asked me to come on board. And um, for me, you know, 1.6 million kids a year in Southeast Asia are sold into slavery and prostitution by their families. Now, when I heard those stats, and there's probably a lot more, more than that, but when I heard those stats, for me, you know, I complained about not getting a hug from my father or whatever as a kid. These kids are sold by their parents into a life of slavery and prostitution. They know what's going to happen to them, and I couldn't get my head around that. So for me, I wanted to be part of, of helping change these kids' lives. You know, I, I consider m- myself very fortunate for the life I've had, although we can sit and drip and complain about this, that and the other, you know, in comparison to these kids, that, you know, something had to be done. So I used, I used my money from Iraq. It was all self-funded by me. And uh, I went over to Southeast Asia and that's where we started. You know, initially we were working in the brothels trying to identify kids and working with the anti-human trafficking department in Thailand. And then when we went in to do the busts, um, all the staff had changed. So, you know, they, they, were, they were leaking the information to the, to the brothels and it was just pointless, absolutely pointless. So from that point, I then went into, I thought you've got to get to, with everything, you've got to get to the source of the problem, forget the stuff on the fringes. And... Um, we went and worked with a, another organization called COSA, Children of Southeast Asia. And we went to basically the Thai and Burmese border and we were a load of camps um, where they held kids waiting to be processed by the cartels. Um, so, you know, taken to the fishing villages, taken to the, to the clubs, um, taken to the sweatshops, all that kind of stuff. So they would be held in these camps. So it was our job to basically get in there to these camps either before the cartels got there or between the fat time they'd come up before they actually took them away and intercept these kids before the cartels got back. So it was, it was amazingly hairy. It was the first time in my career that 
I'd made the decision not to take weapons. We'd made the decision not to take weapons, which was a big call because it's what I've always relied on. And um, to not take... The thing is, if we, if we had had the weapons, then we could easily have been identified as DEA, and that could have caused further problems. So we made the decision not to. Um, and basically, we got in and got a load of these kids out. But unfortunately, we had such a good run that our organisation back home, back in Australia was so proud of what we'd done uh, that they went out to the media. And again, in hindsight, it was the wrong thing to do. But at the time, you know, we were just had a few big wins. We were on a bit of a euphoric moment. And uh, they put it in the paper anyway. It caused a massive international incident. That it was in the papers all over the world. And we were still in country. We went on to further operations out there. And then we got the call to, you've got to get out as quick as possible. The US State Department had got onto the Thai government and said, look, we're reading the newspaper here, we give you millions of dollars every year and you do nothing. And there's a four-man team gone in and uh, done more than you've ever done. And uh, so the Thai government denied that any such activities were going on. They stated that the Grey Man organization was a bogus charity and that we were milking, you know, putting the money in our own pockets. And uh, there was basically a manhunter for us. So it was arrest on site and we had to escape out of Thailand across the Burmese border, back home. And the thing for me, the hardest thing for me was the fact that I'd thrown everything into that. I thought that was my new life. I'd found my purpose. My purpose, with the, I saw the power of helping other people. And that is such a phenomenal gift. When you actually help people less fortunate than you, or just in general anyway, I think that is something that we have lost the power to, to, to harness. Everyone is like hunting for the most social media followers, the more followers on Instagram, whatever it is. Even in a place of work, when you're working on the same team, there's people fighting against each other because they want the kudos of being better than the other person. You know, we forgot how to work together. We forgot how to, we, there's not many people that do selfless acts of kindness anymore for someone for no reward. And that for me, you know, I paid to go over there. There was no reward for me helping these kids. And that was the biggest reward in itself. It was phenomenal. It, it does. I mean, that's something that I would say, if you get a chance, go read the book. Like, that whole section's amazing. Uh, I mean, the whole book is, but yeah, such like, and it's so sad, the way that kind of ended as well. Um, and your conclusion on it as well is like, it's kind of like, it's a bigger problem than, than, than you can solve right now, yeah. which is just sad. Um, just, uh, just talking, so we don't... Your new, your new venture at the moment, what's that based on? Is that, uh, could you run through that? It's not something I've, I've read into at the moment, and especially your Which new book. Called, the, the, new, the new book. <laughs> oh, the new book. Yeah, the new book. Basically, the way my books have gone, I mean, for me, Breakpoint was all about setting the foundation of who I am, the credibility to be able to talk in further books of what I wanted to put out there. You know, it creates the foundation. You know, my, I don't, my credibility is my heritage. I'm not just someone off Instagram or whatever that says, oh, this is what, you know, it comes from experience. And, and, and a lot of the lessons I've learned have been, been harsh. But really it's about, you know, it's, it's like failure in life. I mean, my book, you know, like Breakpoint is about failure. It's not about success. But for me, failure is growth. You know, as long as you look at failure as a milestone of growth and what did you learn from it and how did you move forward from that? That, to me, is growth. It's not failure. 
you know, so I think the more, you know, the last thing I will ever do is fake perfection. I want to keep making mistakes all my life because I know I'm working hard when I do that. So really, my second book gave me, my first book gave me the foundation to be able to write my second book, which really does push into the personal development space. And that is Battle Ready. Battle Ready is the process that I use when I came back. When I did the Thailand operation, I came back, I'd fallen apart. My life was in a, uh, is a real mess. My mental state was horrendous. And it was how battle ready is about the process that I followed to get myself out of that. When I look at people having mental health problems, the reason they've got mental health problems is because they're lost in the circumstances of why they got mental health problems. They talk and talk about, talk about why they got, you know, what happened to them. And for me, when you adjust mental health to mental wealth, that's the moment you stop throwing the line out of that dark hole and start pulling yourself out of it. And that really, you know, that goes back to everything I've said about having a goal. That's about creating a goal that is not based on your current circumstances. Okay, don't focus on where you want to be. Focus, don't focus on where you are. Focus on where you want to be. It's about casting a stone to that and then following that stone. So really, battle ready is the process that I've followed. When I got back to the UK finally in 2014 and my life had fallen apart, I came back to the UK with no money, no nothing. But I came back with a vision, and that was a vision to create a globally identified brand recognized for the positive growth and development of others. And that was Breakpoint. And that was my company. And that's, that was the most powerful thing I came back with, worth more than any money in the bank. And for two months, I put myself into a boot camp. I, put, I isolated myself uh, on my own in a house down in Cornwall, where my family are. And I went through mental processes day in, day out. I cut away the drugs, I cut away the alcohol. I needed a, a mindset based in clarity, not confusion. And I'd started putting in the visualization because I learned that in Iraq. I couldn't get any money from the bank to start my business. So I just thought, what else have I got to play with? And that was just personal development stuff. It's all I had. So I visualized every day. I wrote a contract to myself of where I wanted to be, I signed it. And I used to repeat that to myself every day. Every day, I used to repeat that. I created goals, wrote them down, and I spent every day, it was like a mindset boot camp, doing everything, listening to podcasts, you know, personal development podcasts, everything. And I did that for two months. And at one point, you know, I was like, I had no money. I was went spending what I had on to get websites done and all this and I was running out of cash fast. My family was saying to me, you know, you need to, you need to forget this. You need to go back to the security world. You know, go and do what you guys do, that kind of messaging. And I was like, no, it's break point. You know, it's, I, I, I was so passionate about that idea. I wasn't going to stop. I wasn't going to stop until I was forced to stop. And I hooked up again with Foxy from the show, not seen him for 13 years. We both shared the same vision to, do, to start Breakpoint. Um, and um, it did get to the point at the end of that two months and I was sitting there thinking, this doesn't work. I was like, I was asking, show me a sign. I was thinking that thing in Iraq didn't mean anything. It was just a coincidence. You know, there's no message there. I was starting to feel negative. And I had to fight those thoughts and emotions. And, you know, I used to sit there visualizing every day about me and Foxy being on the stage and talking about our experiences and how people then could benefit from that experience and then how we would use that to employ veterans suffering with PTSD, how we could help um, 
unfortunate, you know, not, no, that's the wrong word, how we could help disadvantaged kids, you know, but then offer professional services to corporates. And I saw it, you know, I saw the vision of me and Foxy on a stage, you know, loads of people there, big audience loving what we said. And then it was all coming to, you know, I started to doubt myself in the end. It was getting on. I was having to fight that doubt. That seed of doubt was in. And then all of a sudden out the blue, Foxy phoned me and he said, you know that idea we've got for Breakpoint? He said, would you like to, would you consider doing that on TV? And I was like, you're fucking kidding me. <laughs> it was like a gift from the gods. And he, I was like, I thought Foxy was in the pub at first. I was like, are you drunk? And he says, no, I'm with the production company now. Do you want to talk to him? I said, yeah. And that's how it started. But for me, when I look at that, I was so intense and so regimented and so disciplined about what I did day in, day in and day out. It didn't deliver to me in the short term. This was all going and going and then it delivered to me. I saw me and Foxy on stage. That was the biggest stage you can ever want to, want to wish for. And that was the platform for Breakpoint. Uh, I mean, that, that's amazing. Um, one thing when you just talk about it then that I'd love to hear some, something more on is the writing yourself a contract. Yeah. And, and then ad adhering to that. Like, what, how did, what did you write down and, and how did you go through it? It was an official contract. I've still got them. I still use them for people. It's actually in the book called The Promise in my new book. Um, and really, for me, it was creating... See, when you've got years and years of program, social programming, programming from school, everything, and, and we end up, you know, the older we get, we, we end up becoming um, subject to repeat habit loops. You know, and that comes back to, like I said before, about um, evolution. You know, it just wants us to repeat what we did yesterday and the day before because it kept us alive till today. So we are creatures, we embrace habit. So really, if you want to change that, you have to make your today a yesterday to be proud of. You know what I mean? A yesterday, how you want your future to be. So for me, it was about, you have to change the blueprint. It's all about changing the subconscious. You can't sort, you can't deal with anything in the frontal cortex. All right, this is where we think we can solve everything in the front, you know, frontal cortex. Uh, you have to plant it in the, in, the, in the subconscious. So for me, it was about rewriting that blueprint. So the contract for me, it was an official document which makes it feel important. And it was, for me, every morning, as I read out that contract, it was my name, and I filled in my name. By this day, I will have my own business called Breakpoint. You know, I put a date, it's so important you put a date on there. Otherwise, as far as the universe is concerned, a million years is nothing. But you have to have a date on there, you have to put your name on it, you have to put your date in there, put your date on there, and then put what your intention is, and what you want. It's just, it's just another way of setting a goal. Um, and then a few bullet points on there about, I know I'll have doubts, but I have support, you know, I have a vision, I have passion. And then I signed it with the date on the bottom. And it was a document just for me to go through every day. You know, and then go to the mirror. Talk, say, you, people try this, right? You come up with an idea who you want to be. You write that down and then you go, and, you go and tell yourself in the mirror. Read it out to yourself. Everyone will go, I feel like an idiot, because that's your ego. But I tell you now, if you can't tell yourself what, you're, what you want, how can you expect to achieve it? So as soon as you cross that bridge and get over your ego and forget the thousand-person audience that isn't there, that changes everything. And that, for me, was changing that, rewriting the blueprint. And this is not something you have to keep on doing. I'm now naturally that way, so I just have to think things. But initially, when you have to change 
your process isn't getting into some kind of disciplined gold setting. It's very clunky. You know what I mean? You have to go through these very regimented processes like I did. So anyway, the point is my second book is that process explained. And the second book is really a workshop of how you can do the same thing. You know, so I let people follow the exact journey that got me to where I am today. And that's the book Battle Ready. I think, um, like I say, society has led us down so long down the wrong path. So you're saying this book is just kind of strip you back and then go be able to go down and... It's regaining your power. My book is about regaining your power. People have... People have the majority of people out there don't think they have any power. They don't understand the power that we have, the power that we have to create exactly what we want. Look at, was it Roger Bannister? Was it Bannister, the four-minute mile? Right, before he did the four-minute mile, everyone said it couldn't be done. Everyone said, no, they can't do that. As soon as he broke it, everyone broke it afterwards. Why is that? Because until they knew that a human could break that, their minds couldn't allow it to be conceived. And that just makes you understand that, you know, it's all locked in here. People just don't understand that. We're socially programmed to create limitations. And we will only actually go outside of those limitations once we know someone else can achieve it. And it's been proved. You know, a lot of people will only want to, to do, will actually state goals only if they know they can achieve them because they're scared of looking stupid. So much ego plays in here. People are ruled by their egos and it's holding them back from their true potential. I think that, it, like I said, I mean, I've said this before and I'll say it again, on, that it's so, it's strange almost to hear you say that for, coming from where, what we perceive military guys to be like, to hear you say about this visualisation and stripping back the ego and that sort of stuff. Um, it's amazing to hear. Uh, I, 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 I'm excited for this to go out as well. Um, just, I, I want to throw some words at you. It's not quick fire. It's yeah. just whatever you think when it comes to mind. Yeah. And uh, the first one I want to st start with, because I know you spoke about it quite a lot, is, is doubters. Doubters. Feel sorry for them. At the end of the day, allow that to give you power. Not don't, don't, don't allow their doubt to be contagious. You know what I mean? There's two, ways you can, there's, there's two ways you can go. You can go left and right on that one. Doubt can, can allow them to almost let that seed of doubt be contagious but just reframe that and think I'm going to prove you wrong don't quit don't ever quit you know persistence beats resistance you know that for me quitters is failure you know but also understand that failure is um, you know success is is, is 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 a series of failures so people that quit the, the only people that fail are people that quit you know if that stops you from achieving your goals then, you know, you have failed. You're embracing failure. The hard path. The hard path is the only path. You know, at the end of the day, you have to push through that short-term discomfort for any long-term gain, and that is the ethos of breakpoint. But nothing comes easy. You know, a lot of people say that there were so many obstacles in the path. The obstacles are the path. Get you, get, and, and, and it is always short-term. You know, it's a, it's a case of just pushing through that short-term discomfort. Embrace the discomfort. That's where you grow. Success is a series of failures. <laughs> Success is a series of failures. You've got to keep on to, to, to achieve anything in life, to achieve, to, to achieve success in life, you must fail and keep on failing. And always 
when you start fa- always know that if you're failing throughout your life as long as you're not repeating the same failures that you're growing at the same time um you've you spoke about this so i'm excited to say this one ego 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 is a big one and ego is the one thing that's going to hold you back from anything you know one thing you've got to learn to be is an emotional observer and that's not just with the ego that's with everything that's aggression that's with every kind of emotion that's with fear and once you learn to observe your emotions such as ego i mean i'm not egoless we've all got ego it serves a purpose in some circumstances but i know through any situation i know when ego's coming in i can stop it before it gets there you know what I mean? But that is, become, that is because I am, I am an observer of my emotions. It's the same with everything. And if I can explain that in, in probably a little bit better is the fact that you imagine a fast-flowing stream. When you're consumed by your emotions, you're in that fast-flowing stream. When you become an observer of your emotions, you're stood on the side of the riverbank choosing which um, emotions you want to align with. But really, and the way to do that, you know, because that can sound quite confusing, is it's about breathe, recalibrate, deliver, okay? And that is not taking action straight away on instinct, straight away all the time. It's about in a pressured situation, cortisol increases in our system, which causes confusion. The only way you can deal with that is through breathing. Okay, to lower cortisol, deep breaths allow clarity and not confusion, and then you can make the right decisions. But saying that, you have to do that within five seconds. Would you, yeah, just just whilst we're on that, the uh, your breathing technique that you spoke about, just would you be able to explain that? I think that could help quite a lot yeah. of people. Typically in a pressured situation, and they do teach this in special forces in some countries now. But breathe, it's all down to your breathing. You know what basically happens when we go into a pressured situation? That could be a negotiation. In business, it can be being shot out, it can be being attacked by a monkey. Whatever it is, your breathing becomes erratic. It's your fight or flight response starting to take over, okay? But what happens through that is your your cortisol level starts to increase and that causes confusion. Again, like, well, our, our heads can only handle five to nine pieces of information at any one time. In a stress situation, it's only one to two. So really in that moment, by first of all controlling your breathing, you breathe, that allows that clarity of thought. You then focus only one to two things that matter at that moment in time. That's triaging the situation. So that's what we call recalibrate. Recalibrate is getting rid of things that don't matter. Like that situation I was in when I was in Iraq and I was being shot at, I was going 140 k's an hour. I was driving the car, I had to shoot, you know, all that stuff going on. If I didn't have a controlled pattern of breathing in that moment, I'd lost it. But that's, that's recalibration. And then once you recalibrate and get rid of everything you, that doesn't matter, you're focused on what you need to do. That's when you deliver. So breathe, quick breaths, control breaths, recalibrate, focus on what you need to, and then deliver the action. Well, is it um, four seconds in? Like, I, I can't it is, remember. but it depends on the situation. Because right, the last okay. thing you want to do, you know, if, it, if you know you're going into a situation... Well, I know I'm going into a pressured situation, whatever it is. You can start that box breathing, it's called. So breathe in for four, hold for four, breathe out for four, hold for four. And it's that control pattern, okay? When, you're in a, when you find yourself in a situation, you don't get the luxury of that time. You know what I mean? You've got to take action. But 
you've got to focus on having a controlled um, uh, pattern of breathing. Now, one thing to do is make sure that you breathe out, okay, first, because that sends a message to your head that the situation is okay. It just sends a message. It's, that's that's just a shortcut. But then you need to get into a pattern of breathing. But if you're about to be killed, don't start going on. <laughs> um, mindset. Mindset is everything. You know, it's mindfulness. And everyone's got to understand that nothing happens in your physical world or everything happens in your physical world as a product of your mindset. You know, until you're mentally prepared, you're never physically ready. So whatever it is you're doing, I mean, and if you want to know what you think about, look at your life. That's what you think about. And if you want to improve that, you need to improve your thinking. Um, there was one thing, this is away from something I forgot to ask about, and it might be completely irrelevant to, to this. It was, um, you spoke about in, I think it was in the Marines, uh, the grey man mentality, yeah. the grey man. And it just, you reminded me when you, when you was on about the project in Thailand. Um, when I heard you describing the grey man, I thought that an everyday person could benefit from that. It's not about the bravado. It's, it's, no. it's about like be, that guy in the corner, as you described it, the guy yeah. in the corner. Do you think that has a benefit to be an, that observant person? I think being the grey man is how you, how you need to deal with everything. I mean, I learned this more than anything on special forces selection. You know, if you're right at the front, and, and, and the thing is with special forces selection, you're not looking for the fastest and the strongest. You're looking for the person that gives the most. But, you know, there's, there's one thing about being the grey man, and that's they're the people that you look at. You know, they're, that's, that, that's the, they're the people that you know are the interesting characters. You know, the ones at the front, they just get themselves highlighted. You know, that's all about ego. So they're, they're, they're ego-driven. But the person that can reserve themselves and sit in the pack and not be the worst, but not be the best, and just taking the information in the center of the pack, they're the ones that will deliver at the end of the day. You know, it's not the people that need to be seen to be at the front. I, 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 love, I love the idea of it, the concept of it as well. Like, there's just something about it that's unbelievable. Is that, so is that what the, the project was named after in Thailand? Yeah, it was. And we just started again. So like I said in the book that, you know, we had to, we had to um, disband the Grey Man. I've just started it in the UK now. So Grey Man Rescue is, we're looking into rescue kids. So it started up again. Yeah. Um, is there anything? I, I really am so happy about what we've covered. Is there anything that you would want to you want to cover no, not at, at all, all mate? Um, one meter square. One meter square. Elite performance psychology. All right. This is because everything at the moment you'll see soon. But one meter square. I've, we've got to be careful what we say here because everything's getting rebranded. One meter square. Let me mention about one meter square though. Yeah. What it, what it's all about. You know, one meter square. You know, in, in pressured situations, um, especially in the special forces, but, you know, in any pressured situation, what you have to do, you know, when all around you is falling apart, you have to forget about everything on the outside world. You have to bring it down into one metre square, okay, and just focus on your immediate environment. And that is making sure that everything in your environment is still moving forward. It still has momentum. And that is one metre square psychology. That's what me and Foxy talk about a lot. So there's big things to come with one metre square. I'm excited to hear. Um, I do, I genuinely recommend, like, I mean, we, we have people on all the time. I read the book this weekend. 
Um, absolutely loved it. So I'm going to be going, going for the new book for sure, but I genuinely recommend there'll be a link in the description to go for all the stuff. Um, really good material. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. Really do appreciate it so oh, much. Thank and, you for the opportunity. Yeah, it's going to be amazing to release this. So thank you very much. Yeah. Awesome. Wicked. And that is a wrap with Ollie Ollerton. I told you it was an interesting conversation. It was one of my favorite conversations. And the whole structure for this podcast episode was around Ollie's book. So please, please go check that out. Um, go check Ollie out on Instagram. He does a lot of cool stuff on Instagram. Check myself out on Instagram and what I get up to and how I apply all the lessons that I learned from all our wonderful guests into my day-to-day life, whether it's fitness training, endurance work, cold therapy, whatever it is, uncomfortable situations, the behind the scenes of what we do on a day-to-day basis, talking about the grief of my son and how I'm dealing with that and sort of what we are doing as as charity work at Mulligan Brothers. Um, Go to our Instagram at Jordan Mulligan Brother at Mulligan Brothers. Give us a follow. Say hello. And yeah, come, come, come by and say hello. Be a part of the Inspire Change movement. The last thing I want to say is thank you to everybody, all the veterans who have been on our podcast, who have been on Mulligan Brothers, for all your service and reaching out and allowing us to share your message and the things you've learned and the lessons you've learned along the way. Thank you so much for being a part of this and helping inspire change. We have thousands of messages and emails come through about the projects we do with veterans and all of them, especially the ones from veterans themselves, cannot thank you guys enough. They cannot... They take so much from these messages. It helps so many people. And this is what Mulligan Brothers is all about. And I can't thank you enough for allowing us to help be a part of helping people. Um, So thank you very much. If you gain something from this, please share it with somebody. You never know who it could impact. You never know who Ollie's, Ollerton's message could resonate with. It might not be a veteran. It might be somebody else who's struggling at the moment. It might be that naughty kid in school who's inside of everybody um, someone might resonate with that through Ollie's, Ollie's stories, you know. So yeah, that was episode four of the Mulligan Rivers podcast, the most inspiring podcast in the world. I am your host, Jordan Mulligan. Thank you for listening. And you'll hear me in the next one. Go inspire some change. Peace.